Hello, dreamers, and welcome to the latest installment of California Dreaming. In the last episode, in the beginning, I told you about the interrogation that I watched of Grant Amato, that Florida guy who murdered his parents and one of his brothers because they were kicking him out and cutting him off for robbing everybody in his life in order to pay for online interactions with the webcam model from Bulgaria named Sylvie. He's what you would call a family annihilator. However, there is a term more specific to someone who murders their own parents. Parasite. Also last weekend, I posted in the group about the interrogation of Florida woman Amy Day. She had murdered her mother and buried her in the backyard and ridiculously planted plastic flowers on top. No stranger murderer would go through the trouble, right? Another well-known case, if you recall, is a guy named Bart Whitaker. This happened in Sugarland, Texas. He murdered his mom and his brother in 2003. Bart himself was also shot in this attack, but it wasn't a fatal injury. And his father, Kent, survived the shooting too. But Bart was subsequently convicted for the murders and sentenced to death. But his father ended up fighting for many years to have that death sentence commuted and his execution was scheduled and the governor eventually gave him a last minute sentence commutation and he was resentenced to serving life in prison without the possibility of parole. So I started thinking about cases that I could tell you on this show. I've covered parasites before episode 21 was on Tyler Witt, the 14-year-old who, along with her boyfriend, killed her mom in June of 2009. In episode 82, we covered the case of professional poker player Ernie Shearer, who murdered both of his parents in order to gain the inheritance and life insurance money so he can pull himself out of gambling debts. Episode 85 was on Rachel Mullinex, similar to Tyler Witt, She and her boyfriend murdered her mom, Barbara Mullinex, in 2006. We did cover the case of Bruce Lisker in episodes 120 and 121. He was actually convicted of murdering his mom, but it turns out he was wrongly convicted and released after serving 26 years in prison. It doesn't really seem to happen as often as spouses killing spouses or parents killing their children, but... Those cases are out there, children, killing the very people who brought them into this world. And of those cases that I did mention, Tyler Witt is still in prison. She is only 27 years old, and she's being housed at the Central California Women's Facility in Chowchilla, California. Her eligibility for parole is listed as May of 2020. I couldn't find any articles as to whether or not she was denied parole because of the pandemic, it might be delayed, but she is still in the California inmate locator. As for Rachel Mullinex, I couldn't find her on the inmate locator, and I couldn't find any articles about her parole. Her brother did give an interview in April of 2020, and he said that her parole had been delayed because of the pandemic. So since I couldn't find her in the correctional system, she might very well be free now. And in my poking around, I was reminded of a couple of parasite cases from California that we haven't covered yet. 
I might do one of them on Patreon. I'm not quite sure yet. I have to see how much information is out there. But one of those stories I have to share here with you today. This is the 211th episode of California Dreaming, the tale of Stepdaddy's Little Girl. Before I get into the story, I wanted to thank you all for listening to the show and remind you that there are a number of ways that you can help grow our audience. You can leave a rating and a review on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you listen to the show on. It helps to drive us up the charts and gives the show more visibility. You can recommend us in true crime fan groups. Listeners are always looking for new podcasts to try. And there's lots of you who do recommend California Dreaming in those groups, and I appreciate that. And if you would like to help support the production of the podcast, you can become a member of our Patreon with tiers starting as little as $1 a month. And that will grant you access to almost all of the additional content available exclusively to subscribers. Last week, I was able to put up a second November episode for the $5 and above tier members, which is my way of showing my appreciation for those who are able to give just a little bit extra. That was the case of the 2006 disappearance of Nina Reiser out of Oakland, California. This week, I'd like to thank Eunice D, Layla B, Kim B, Jeremy A, Evelyn L, Hope J, Cordelia F, Lael C, and Sarah B for either recently joining Patreon or raising your pledges to the next tier. Also, at the end of this episode, please listen for a promo for a new to me podcast called A Nefarious Nightmare, hosted by Courtney and Amanda. They tell these stories, true crime stories, but they play this faint sound of crickets chirping in the background. And while that may not be everybody's thing, I found it to be incredibly relaxing. And the girls made me chuckle with their little dad jokes that they like to tell. So I will play that at the end of the outro. And I think that's it for the housekeeping. So let's get into today's story. At approximately 12.30 p.m. on the afternoon of Thursday, July 19th, 2007, 911 dispatch received a frantic call from a home located in the quiet Rolando Village neighborhood of San Diego, California. The caller, a 17-year-old girl named Bray, said, Help, please. I think we've been robbed. I'm tied up and my dad's been shot. The dispatcher said, What's your name? Bray. Bray, how old are you? I'm 17. Your dad needs paramedics? I think he's dead. Okay, Bray, where's the person that shot you? I don't know. He ran off. Okay, and he came into your house and did this? Yes. And who was he? Do you know? I have no idea. Was he white, black, Hispanic? He was all covered from head to toe. Okay, all right. Where's your dad? Where is your dad at? 
He's on the floor. And at this point in the call, Bray begins sobbing even more. Stay on the line, Bray. It's just you and your dad there? Yes. What about the gun? Did you see the gun? Was it like a handgun? I don't know guns at all. I'm sorry. Okay. Did he put it in his pocket when he left or... I don't know. I just looked at my dad. Okay. All right. Is there anything else you can tell me? What did he say when you and your dad came in or did he just shoot your dad? He asked for the safe. What? He asked for the combination to the safe. Okay, so he asked for the combination to the safe. What did your dad do? He refused. And then he shot him. Okay, all right. So he never got to the safe, right, Bray? No. It's just you and your dad that live there? Or do you have a mom? My mom died last year. Okay, do you have any brothers or sisters? Yes. Where are they? Oregon and Arizona. And where is your dad right now? Laying on the floor. Okay, all right, Bray, all right. So, he never took anything? I don't know. He took my watch and my ring. He had me zip-tie my dad. Oh, he zip-tied you? All right, Bray, you're doing good. You're doing good, all right? And then when he talked, he didn't have any accent or anything? No, he only just disguised his voice like a cartoon character. Like a cartoon character? Okay. All right. Gotcha. So you never recognized him or never saw him before? No. Can you tell if your dad is breathing? Bray? No. I'm too far away to check. Okay. Do you know where he was shot at? Did he shoot him in the arm or where? Only if you know. He shot him in the head at least once. I know because he has blood pouring out of his head. Do you hear those sirens? I hear sirens. They're coming to help you, all right? Somebody's here. I'm right here. Okay, so we'll talk more about the content of the 911 call in a little bit because I have a couple of issues with it, and some of you probably heard some too. San Diego homicide detectives J.C. Smith and Brett Burkett arrived at the scene a short time later. They found the victim... 63-year-old Tim McNeil lying on the ground in the game room next to a pool table, his head surrounded by a large pool of blood. He had just celebrated his 63rd birthday the day before. He had on a white dress shirt and tie, but he was naked from the waist down. We will find out later why that is. Tim had come home in the middle of the day to take Bray out to lunch. A zip tie was on the ground too, next to one of his hands. It appeared as though Tim was going to be zip-tied, but that was abandoned, and the perpetrator went ahead and shot him. Bray was nearby crying hysterically, having just witnessed her father's murder. She was also bound with zip-ties, her hands behind her back. Based on what she told 911 and to the homicide investigators, they immediately feared that there was an unidentified masked gunman running loose on the streets of San Diego. Bray had become the number one priority. After all, she was the only witness that they had to this brutal and senseless murder. She was their best chance to figuring out who committed this crime. After all, it's not every day that they have an actual eyewitness 
to an apparent home invasion burglary gone bad. They were going to need to get as much as possible from Bray, and they were going to have to get it quickly. One of the first things Bray was able to tell investigators is that the person who shot her dad fled the scene by way of the back door of the house. When police began searching, they discovered the gun on the ground outside, which turned out to be a revolver. From there, police began searching the neighborhood, going door to door, looking for witnesses who may have caught a glimpse of someone fleeing the area or getting into a vehicle. Canines were brought in with hopes of tracking the direction the shooter may have gone and talking to witnesses along the way. One witness said that he heard the popping sounds, which was presumably the sounds of gunfire, but he said that it really didn't cause him that much concern. But then within 15 minutes or so, helicopters were overhead and the neighborhood was swarming with police officers. There were several others who heard the gunshots when they peered outside. They did see a man running. He emerged from some overgrown brushy area and then ran up the street. He had taken a footpath, headed over to some stairs that took him up a bluff. And from there, the witnesses lost sight of him. So let me describe how Tim's home was situated the best that I can from the information available in the court documents. Tim's house was built on a hill. The upper level was accessible from the street. The lower level was accessible from both a staircase inside the house and a driveway that ran down the left side of the property. From the backyard, a footpath led down to a lower street. Throughout the hilly neighborhood, stairway easements provided homeowners access to higher and lower streets. That's why there would be some staircases outdoors for Nathan to run up. So the gunman did leave some critical pieces of evidence behind. Partway up the stairs, stuck in some branches up in a tree, they found two pieces of clothing, a black shirt and a black or dark navy blue beanie that had eye holes cut into it. And if I'm not mistaken, the court documents indicated that when the wadded up shirt was found, at first they didn't realize that the mask was inside of it until it was opened up at the lab. Neighbors, of course, were shocked at the news of Tim's murder. Tim wasn't like the most social guy in the neighborhood, but he was definitely someone that people saw just about every single day as he came and went from work. And he was always one to give a wave and a smile. Tim was a relatively well-known defense attorney, and so he wasn't considered to be your typical candidate to become a victim of homicide. There wasn't anything about him, nothing about his personal life that would be considered high risk. And when it came to his work as a defense attorney, while that may have him interacting closely with criminal defendants, he was quite good at what he did. And those who worked with him said that Tim won most of his cases, which you would think, in theory, should have made him quite a popular guy. I mean, because if you're a criminal defendant, but your attorney won your case for you, you're not going to turn around and shoot him. He's going to be like your favorite person ever. So anyway, Tim's first marriage produced one daughter, Erin. But the marriage to Erin's mom didn't last it ended in divorce. 
Following the split, Tim met a woman named Doreen Hansen. She was 23 years his junior, but she brought with her two young children from previous relationships, Nathan and Bray. I believe they have different dads because they do not share the same last name. When they got married, Nathan was six and Bray was four. While Tim developed a strong bond with Bray, things didn't go so smoothly with Nathan, who ended up moving in with his grandmother in Arizona when he was 12. He finished high school with good, solid grades and had been in college for a couple of semesters at the time of Tim's death. Ray also developed a close relationship with her older stepsister, who described Bray as a very bright, happy, always laughing, always smiling kid who was sharp, a quick learner, and she was able to speak French fluently. On top of that, Bray was as cute as a button, and she latched on to Tim very quickly and always referred to him as Daddy. Aaron pointed out that she didn't even call him Daddy. Bray hit the stepfather Lotto when Tim McNeil came into her life as he treated her as if she were his own. He cared for her and he loved her just as much as he did his older daughter who was an only child. And she very much enjoyed having a little sister too. So when she received the call up in Oregon where she resided that her dad had been murdered, her thoughts immediately went to Bray, wanting to know where she was and if she had been harmed. It was Aaron's aunt, Bonnie, who made the call. Bonnie was married to Tim's younger brother, Rick, and she reassured Aaron that Bray was okay. So her next thoughts were, what's going to happen to Bray now? Because as it would turn out, Bray had a pretty complicated life. And what was going to happen to her next actually wouldn't take all that long to figure out. The detectives on the case, Detectives Smith and Burkett, spent the afternoon talking to Bray. And they had somewhat of a problem with something that Bray had mentioned in her 911 call. And they didn't quite get what it all meant. They had an issue with the part where Bray described the gunman who was wearing a beanie with the holes cut out and pulled down his face. She described him having disguised his voice like some kind of cartoon character. They wanted to know more about this. So they asked her again what the gunman sounded like. And Bray repeated what she had said on the 911 call. That the gunman sounded like a cartoon character. So, <laughs> what does that have us thinking? I mean, maybe like a sing-songy kind of voice? High-pitched, exaggerated, pitchy, melodic? This bothered the detectives because when somebody wants to pull off a home invasion robbery, and that's what Bray said this was, that this gunman wanted the combination to the safe. So when somebody does this, they really want to do everything that they can to intimidate their victims. They control the room, not only with their weapons, but also with their voices. They make demands, they give orders, and they're probably going to use a loud, assertive, strong voice. And they're not going to try to sound like Mickey Mouse or Dora the Explorer. Both detectives had never heard anything like this 
ever happening. And both of them found it to be an exceedingly bizarre element of Bray's story. So I found a couple more aspects of Bray's 911 call to be suspicious. Starting with her opening line, help, please. I think we've been robbed. I'm tied up and my dad's been shot. Things don't really seem to be prioritized properly. She started off by saying that she thinks that they've been robbed. It's kind of an either you did or either you didn't kind of a thing, but whatever. The next thing that Bray said is that she was tied up and that her dad's been shot. I find it a little bit odd that she would bring up being zip tied before she mentioned that her dad was shot. Now, I recently called 911. I brought it up in our Facebook group and I posted some pictures too. There was a man knocking at my door and the dogs were barking so much. And usually if I crack the door open so I can find out what the person is saying, the dogs tend to stop all the barking I don't really know why. I think it's because they want to try to inspect whoever it is so that they can maybe sniff the person or look at what they have or what they're doing. So they usually shut up when I open the door. But when I cracked the door open, this man began trying to shove his way in. I know, I know. I got all the lectures about opening the door. It was high noon on a Sunday. It was broad daylight neighbors were around dogs barky as hell but I get it okay shouldn't open the door I got it okay I've been told the guy was intoxicated or high or both and he ended up kind of falling over and I was able to push the door shut and I deadbolted it so I called 911 and this is what I said there's a guy at my front door he tried to force his way in but he fell I think he might be intoxicated I got the door locked but he's still pushing on it and turning the knob. From there, the 911 operator starts asking the questions that are their priority. What's your address? What does the man look like? What race is he? What is he wearing? Does he have any tattoos or anything distinguishing about him? Does he appear intoxicated? Does he have a weapon? Do I have a weapon? Do I know who this man is? I didn't start off saying, I think there's a man at my front door. I was minding my own business when my dogs suddenly started barking uncontrollably. When I went to find out what all the ruckus was about, there was this guy. I didn't meander around it. I just got straight to the point. There's a guy trying to force his way into my apartment. To me, it was the most urgent thing that I wanted 911 to know. Not that I was at my computer or I was trying to watch something on Netflix or playing on my iPad, whatever. And in reference to some 911 calls, particularly in the John Bonet Ramsey case, Patsy Ramsey's 911 call was criticized for being odd too. When she started off by saying the street address first, and then the words, we have a kidnapping. And then later in the call, referring to herself as the mother. I tried to put myself in her shoes and how I would have worded things. While there's a stranger at my door, wasn't as huge of a thing as waking up and finding my daughter missing. It was still the one thing that I wanted 911 to know, that there is a guy trying to force his way into my apartment. And as anxious as I was for the police to arrive, 
I never told them over the phone, please hurry, get somebody here. Hurry, please. I wasn't begging for them to get here. Mostly I was just thinking, I hope that the police can find my apartment. You know, it's kind of like when you're waiting for DoorDash to show up with your dinner. You really want your apartment to be found easily. That was my next concern. But when it comes to Bray's 911 call, I felt like her priorities were a little bit mixed up. But this may have been her first experience calling 911. I don't know. The next thing that bothered me about Bray was her inability to tell 911 what the gun looked like. She saw the gun, and even if she doesn't know a whole lot about guns, there are usually two main categories to choose from. A handgun or a rifle, a small one or a long one. But she didn't do that. Bray said she doesn't know about guns. The dispatcher asked if he put the gun in his pocket and she said she didn't know. She just looked at her dad. But then later in the call, the dispatcher asked if she could see if her dad was breathing, but she said she was too far away. So I don't know. First, she said she didn't look at the gun because she was looking at her dad. But then she said she couldn't tell if he was breathing because she was too far away. So she couldn't see. Then Bray said the gunman asked for the safe and the combination to the safe. I know that there are lots of houses that have safes. Not everyone does. And they're usually hidden. I don't know, in a closet behind a painting. But this burglar apparently assumed correctly that there was a safe. And Bray said that her dad refused. And so the gunman shot him. In a genuine home invasion situation such as this, I mean, Tim was a defense attorney, but he was also a father. Under the threat of being shot, I don't think that he would refuse to give the burglar what he was asking for. I think that he would comply. Most people would if they felt that their lives and the lives of their loved ones were in jeopardy. So this supposed refusal led him to being immediately shot to death. Like the gunman didn't even try threatening him or hitting him with the butt of the gun or even threatening Bray. But none of that happened. He asked for the combination. Tim refused. And so I'll just kill you and leave empty handed. And while I'm at it, I'll leave a witness alive. Then Bray changed her story from one sentence to the next. The dispatcher said, so he never took anything. And Bray said, I don't know. And she quickly followed up with, he took my watch and my ring. Okay, so he killed the dad who has all the money and a safe, resulting in him getting nothing because he apparently accepted dad's refusal, but then decided to take a ring and a watch from a 17-year-old. It all just kind of sounds a little weird. And then... It's not mentioned in the 911 call, but it comes up later on in the facts of the case that Tim McNeil was naked from the waist down. The reason why is because he had asked to go to the bathroom. So supposedly the gunman cut the zip tie from Bray's wrists and ordered her to remove McNeil's pants. And I had to think about this one a lot. We know that this gunman came to the home prepared to kill if he didn't get what he wanted from the homeowner. He knew that he wouldn't hesitate to shoot this man in the head if he wasn't going to comply. He wasn't going to hesitate to shoot this man in the head and cause him to bleed out from bullet wounds all over the floor. Yet, 
when Tim asked to go to the bathroom, they made a special concession. It kind of leads me to believe that the gunman was kind of acting on instinct. If you're going to allow your captive, who you are about to murder, a chance to go to the bathroom, it seems kind of like Tim was somebody that the gunman knew or possibly even cared about at one point. I also find it odd that Tim McNeil would ask to go to the bathroom. But I think that maybe he was on to what was going on and was trying to buy himself time or possibly even a chance to resist and fight back. I'm not sure, though. It's such a strange thing to have happened in this case. And when Tim was killed, his pants had never been put back on. Later on, we'll find out why that all happened. Then there was this whole thing about the cartoon voice. And I actually hadn't really put all that much thought into it until the police said in regards to a home invasion burglar that that person is going to want to sound commanding and brutal. But my first thought was the only reason someone would need to try to disguise their voice would be because if they didn't, then the victims might recognize them. I even think when I listened to the 911 call that the dispatcher didn't really believe what Bray was saying either. She said, like a cartoon character, okay, all right, gotcha. Yeah, I don't think it sounded believable at all. I'll post the link to the 911 call in the show notes. And if I remember, I'll post it in the Facebook discussion group. When police arrived, I believe Bray was still zip-tied, but she wasn't zip-tied to anything. She had been ordered to sit on the floor in the laundry room and to face the wall and told not to move. Bray was eventually taken to Tim's brother's house that evening. This would be her uncle Rick and Aunt Bonnie. Of course, they welcomed Bray, and when police drove her over there, they came inside to continue asking Bray more questions about the break-in and the shooting. And while they were talking, Bray said something that was just as strange as the cartoon voice thing, perhaps even more so. When talking about the gunman, Bray referred to him as Nathan. One of the detectives caught the name drop right away and wrote it down. But they continued to listen to Bray recount the details of the crime, and then she reverted back to referring to the gunman as the intruder. So when she finally finished, one of the detectives said, Okay, a second ago you brought up the name Nathan. And what bothered the detective wasn't the fact that she said it. It was the fact that she was denying she said it. And Bray wasn't finished with the unusual things that she had been saying. Okay, well, let's be real. They're not just unusual, but they're suspicious. In addition to the cartoon voice and calling the masked gunman Nathan, when Bray was at her aunt and uncle's house, her cousin showed her a composite sketch that was created by witnesses who saw the gunman fleeing after he ditched the mask. Bray's uncle was there when she was looking at the composite and she made the comment, oh no, the guy's chin wasn't that square. And her cousin was like, I thought the intruder was wearing a mask the whole time he was at your house and that you didn't get a look at his face. Bray kind of tried to roll back on the comment, but it was too late. 
Her cousin immediately got on the phone and called the detectives back right away. Once they heard what Bray said describing the shape of the gunman's face, that was it. They were certain that not only was Bray holding back important information, they were sure that she knew more than she was letting on and she was lying to their faces. The detectives didn't even get back to their office or to their police station, wherever they came from. They turned their vehicle right around and headed straight back to Rick and Bonnie's house. Bray had just become their prime suspect. In fact, it had gotten to the point where they had no doubt that they had enough to take Bray into custody immediately, and it hadn't even been 12 hours since Tim McNeil was shot dead in his home when Bray Hansen was arrested for his murder. And she went quietly. She didn't fuss. She didn't cry. She wasn't surprised. She just stood up, put her hands behind her back so she could be placed in handcuffs. The detective said that this isn't how an innocent person behaves. Someone who is being accused of doing something that they didn't do will proclaim their innocence. They will be completely bewildered as to why they're being arrested. But not Bray. She just went quietly and never said a word. That might be the case, but it could be that Bray knows that she has gotten to the point where she needs to just shut up and stop incriminating herself. But I don't think she's that bright. I've been watching lots of interrogation videos lately and nobody just shuts up. Everybody, for some reason, waves their rights to an attorney and decides to talk to police. But I think Bray has figured it out that she doesn't know what she's doing and she wasn't going to be as good at this as she thought she could be. Not that pulling off a professional hit is something to put onto your resume, but we can see how easy it is to mess up when you're a teenager and you think you can outsmart all of the adults. You think you can pull off the perfect crime, but you end up tripping yourself up because you're not the smartest person in the world and you don't know what you're doing when it comes to murder. I've brought up an episode of Forensic Files recently in the Facebook group because I couldn't remember which episode it was, but you all saved the day and sent me the link to it. It was about this teenager named Brian Vaughn. His dad was an attorney in Texas. And for whatever stupid teenage reasons, Brian wanted a new car. But his dad was like, yeah, no. So what's the solution? Brian decided to arson his car. It was suspicious, but there were never any charges filed. And his dad, his name was Leslie Vaughn. He said he would get him a replacement car, but it was definitely not going to be a brand new car. He would only get him another used car. So Brian decided the best way to deal with that was to murder his dad. So after dad went to bed, Brian took his younger brother over to the neighbor's house. He banged on the door. This was the middle of the night. He told the neighbors that there was an intruder at their home and he wanted to leave his brother there. So they took the little brother in, and when they did, the neighbors glanced at the clock, making note of the time. So I want to say it was about 20 minutes later when 911 received a phone call from Brian Vaughn. He was telling the dispatcher that someone had broken into their house and shot his dad. He said that his dad was in his bedroom and the door was locked, so he couldn't get inside to check on him or help him. Then at another point in the call, when talking to 911, 
Ryan described there being a lot of blood coming from his dad's mouth. And the operator caught it. And she said, if the door is locked and you can't get in, how do you know there's a lot of blood coming from his mouth? And Brian answered, I don't know that. Then there were other mistakes that he made, like when he staged the scene by breaking the French door glass leading out to the second story balcony from his dad's master bedroom. The broken glass was on the outside on the balcony rather than on the inside in the carpet. And broken glass had fallen on top of his father's dead body, meaning it was broken after he was killed. And glass fragments were also tracked into the hallway where Brian claimed that he couldn't get into the bedroom because the door was locked. Now that I think about it, Bray and Brian's cases are eerily similar. Brian Vaughn was just a really super spoiled, entitled brat. And when it came to Bray, I don't know how spoiled or not spoiled she was, but I do have a little bit of sympathy for her. And we will talk about that when I share more information about her life leading up to the time that her stepdad was murdered. So now that Bray was in custody, investigators interrogated her right away to find out what was going on here. They wanted to know what she knew and what she had done. And it didn't take long for Bray to fold. She knew that she wasn't going to get away with it. So she began to explain the plan to murder her stepfather. In part, it went a little something like this. The detective said, walk me through what happened. Bray began, So what happened that day was he was late. I was calling him because who was late? My dad was late getting home. So he walks into his room, drops off some change, walks back out. I can tell he's walking downstairs. And by this time, I'm freaking out because I know what's about to happen. And I'm just, yeah. Did you follow him down like you were supposed to? I followed him down and my brother acted like he didn't know me at all. He just pointed the gun at me and said, you tie him. So I tied him, but I didn't tie him very tightly, hoping that he would escape. What did you tie him with? A zip tie. Where did you get those? Nathan brought two kinds. He brought two thick ones, about that thick, and a bunch of little ones. Like I could tell he didn't want his wrist tied, and I didn't really want to tie him, And I just kind of did it really loosely or whatever. And he took it and yanked it in. Nathan did. He yanked it in tight. He was like, Nathan, don't do this. You know, you can go back now. I promise I won't call the cops or anything. Blah, 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 blah. I was like, Nathan, maybe we should listen to him. Or actually, I said, maybe you should listen to him. Because at this point, my dad didn't know I was involved. And he was like, no, no, whatever. And I don't know exactly what happened because it happened so fast, but I think my dad lunged at him and tried to get the gun. And I kind of turned away and was just like freaking out majorly. And I heard gunfire. Where were you? I was in the same room, but over here. He's like right here. And I'm like over there. What room were you in? The game room. And so at first I thought that my dad had won and Nathan had gotten shot. But then I looked back and saw my dad saying, you shot me, you killed me. And then Nathan, I don't know exactly the order he went in. He missed once, I know. He hit the side of his face once. I know then he fired another shot in the back of his head. And once he was down, 
who was twitching. Did you watch all of this? Yeah. Must have been pretty traumatic. Well, just a little. Did he put the gun straight to his head, or how did he? The last shot. He had put it about that far from his head, I guess. And in the video, it looks like Bray motioned about maybe a foot or 12 inches away. So it was a pretty close gunshot. How many shots did he fire in total, do you think? I'd say one, two, four. Then what happened? And then he ran out and I was still just freaking out. And so I went over and I dialed 911. How did you dial 911? With my tongue. Okay. And then the police came. Your dad was obviously dead. Did you look at him or try to help him or anything? I looked at him and I knew he had many shots to the head. There's no chance. I saw him twitch a couple of times and it totally freaked me out. And I heard him. It sounded like he was snoring. Why did you guys kill your dad? Why did you even plan it? I don't. Nathan's reasons were purely monetary. So you paid him 1700 bucks? Yeah. With me, it really wasn't about the money. It was just, I was really, really pissed off at my dad. He basically made me feel like I was nothing. That I was not worth anything. That I had like, that I didn't matter. He was basically going to cut me out of his life completely. I knew he had already chosen his girlfriend over me. And it really hurt. Really bad. Because this is the man that I thought loved me. And was my dad. I have a question for you. Do you feel somewhat relieved that he's dead? No. How do you feel? Guilty. When you say guilty, like what do you mean? I'm sad I did it. I can't believe I did it. I'm disappointed in myself. I feel like I've screwed up my life. I'm curious. What do you think should happen to you? Well... I don't think I should be charged with murder. Do you think you should be charged with anything? I had some part in it, so yes. I mean, I kind of did start the whole thing, even if it was, I don't know, a lapse of judgment or whatever. What do you think you should be held accountable for then, for your fault? I do and I don't, because I'm usually not like this. And that's where the video cut off that I found available online. Bray went on to say that the plan was carried out by her brother, but it got out of hand. She said she wanted to stop it, but she couldn't. She said that she thought about calling the police and that she had even dialed the phone once or twice, but just didn't hit the call button. She said she was scared. The news of her father's death devastated Tim's eldest daughter, Erin. He had just turned 63 years old the day before. And what made the pain so much worse is the fact that it was her little stepsister that was responsible for this. It broke her heart. Bray had been such a wonderful, sweet little sister. So they had Bray in custody, but they next focused on getting Nathan into custody. They did not know when they first arrived at the crime scene that Bray had a brother. They found out that he was attending college in Arizona. They also found out that Bray and Nathan had started planning the murder several days before Tim's birthday. That they talked about ways to kill him, beating him with a baseball bat, injecting him with a poison, 
Bray had also admitted to trying to hire a hitman to kill Tim. Nathan said that he knew somebody. So she put some money together and the gun that had belonged to her mother and a duplicate key to the house that she had made inside of a box and left it in the front yard. But apparently the hitman didn't show up or backed out. Nathan was unable to find anybody willing to do it. The detectives wanted to know more about Bray's reasoning behind it all. There was something that was troubling about her relationship with her stepdad. So they wanted to know more about that too. She said when the hitman fell through, she started thinking that this wasn't going to happen, that it wasn't going to be real. And at that point, she just kind of started going through the motions. But it got real when Nathan decided to do it himself. He showed up at the house. He was the one that picked up the gun and the money, and he was going to do it. Now, if you have a chance to watch this interrogation, and I'll post the link in the show notes, you will notice that Bray's whole demeanor is very cold and emotionless. There is very little to no crying. She had moments, but the detective said there weren't even any tears. She made perfect eye contact, and in the most matter-of-fact way, she explained how she and Nathan carried out this murder. It was unlike anything that these detectives had ever seen before. And I find it pretty troubling too. But sometimes when I see these interrogations, and obviously, you know, I've been watching a bunch of them lately. I don't know if any of us can really truly understand what it means to be sitting in a small room like that. Faced with the possibility of losing your freedom forever. You're in this tiny room and after a while, it probably starts to feel like the walls are closing in on you. I wonder if people just sort of go into this self-preservation mode and just have room for only so many different types of emotions and finding out which way is the best way of dealing with the trouble that these people are now faced with. They're just preoccupied with that. I mean, we just can't know unless we find ourselves being grilled as a murder suspect. And by the way, the best way of dealing with a situation like this, hands down, 100% every single time, exercise your freaking right to have an attorney present during questioning. Guilty or innocent, just ask for your attorney. Shut your face, shut your mouth, and let your lawyer handle your business. End of story. And then maybe you can free up some emotional space so you can actually cry and feel remorse if that is all possible. It is very troubling to see this young lady in her very childlike stature and childlike voice talk so callously about murdering her stepfather. The detectives on the case in San Diego contacted their counterparts in Arizona. And in short order, Phoenix police were banging on his door in the middle of the night. They tossed him up out of bed and hauled him off to the Maricopa County Jail. Detectives Smith and Burkett were on a flight to Phoenix the next morning, and they showed up to the jail to interrogate Nathan. First, Nathan denied being involved. He denied being in San Diego. Next, the detectives broke the news to him that Bray had confessed everything. And lastly, Nathan took the very sage advice to ask for an attorney. For a time to the media, when Nathan was asked if he killed Tim McNeil, he denied it. When he was asked if Bray did it, he said he can't answer that. Well, 
what would be the explanation for all of this? Nathan would say that Bray probably freaked out and blamed the first person who came to her mind, her brother. Bray also denied killing Tim in the media. Another thing that investigators really wanted to try and uncover is what happened between Tim McNeil and his stepchildren that would lead to something like this happening. And this, dreamers, is where my sympathy for Bray begins. I told you in the beginning that she was four and Nathan was six when their mother married Tim. And from what Tim's friends and family have said, Bray was a very happy, bright little girl. But Nathan, he was troubled, deeply troubled. He did not take well to having this new so-called father figure in his life, who he believed shouldn't be having any sort of authority over him. Compounding the problems, their mother, Doreen Hansen, had long battled struggles with depression and alcoholism. Both Bray and Nathan said when their mom grew angry or frustrated, she mostly took it out on them. Nathan even went so far as to say that his mom wasn't right in her mind, that she was very abusive, and all it did was alienate him. He also accused his mom of attacking him with a two-by-four. And I already mentioned that when Nathan turned 12, he moved to Arizona to live with his grandmother. And from there, by all accounts, Nathan thrived. His friends who knew him, who went to school with him, said that he was a great friend, a decent person, he's a little bit nerdy, smart with computers, and he had really gained a reputation for being the go-to guy whenever anyone needed help with their computer. But sadly, after being married to Tim for 12 years, Doreen Hansen took her own life on June 17, 2006. She overdosed on prescription pills. She was only 39 years old. One year, one month, and two days later, Bray and Nathan carried out their plot to murder their stepfather. Nathan did say that after his mom died, he started speaking to his stepdad more. Nathan, of course, was older by then. He was 18 going on 19, so he was more capable of dealing with having a relationship with a stepfather. And he said he was beginning to respect the fact that his stepdad was a pretty smart and successful guy. So they kind of had more of a student-teacher type relationship as opposed to father-son. But in continuing to deny responsibility for Tim's death, Nathan would say that he had no reason to kill Tim. He had actually developed a relationship with him and really had more to gain from him being alive than dead. Nathan even built a computer for Tim. He helped him with repairs, things of that sort. It was Bray, Nathan claimed, that was angry with Tim. And Nathan's not wrong. She told the detectives that in her interrogation. She was very hurt and very, very angry. Bray lost her mom a little more than a year before she arranged to have her stepfather killed. Where is Bray's biological father? I have no idea. There has been absolutely no mention of him in any of the articles that I've read. Her brother, Nathan, had left to go live with his grandma when he was 12 and Bray was 10. And in all of this turmoil in her life, Bray latched on to Tim. Her mother struggled with depression and alcoholism, so that, 
along with her dad gone and her brother gone, it's clear why she became so attached to Tim. Tim was probably the most stable thing that that girl ever had in her life. And then her mom killed herself when Bray was only 16. There isn't all that much information out there in terms of her relationship with her mom, but we can probably imagine that it was tumultuous. So she leaned in hard on her relationship with her stepdad, and she may very well have thought that she'd have him forever. But for Tim, after Doreen committed suicide, it was only going to be a matter of time before he started the process of moving on. He eventually began a new relationship with a woman named Kim Mara Baida. Investigators believe that Bray was becoming overwhelmed with feelings of rejection and abandonment. That was the speculation anyway. And it was that fear that Bray was feeling that morphed into anger. They said that she was jealous of his new girlfriend. I'm not really sure if I agree with that 100%. There might be a factor of jealousy somewhere in there, but it felt more like it was fear, that Bray was acting on fear. She claimed in her interrogation that Tim was preparing to cut her out of his life completely. Her words, her claim, but I don't know how much truth there is to that. She said that he chose his girlfriend over her and it hurt. It hurt really, really bad because this is the man that I thought that loved me and was my dad. Investigators also said that the day before, Bray had invited Tim to lunch for his birthday, but he decided to go out with his girlfriend instead. So they rescheduled their lunch date for the following day. Even though it probably made Bray upset that Tim changed their plans, once again choosing his girlfriend over her, it wasn't the impetus for the events that were about to take place, which was the plot to murder him. And that's because the plans had already been set in motion. Their murder was supposed to happen on Tim's birthday. But because Tim changed his mind and went out with his girlfriend instead, it would have to be postponed for one day. Bray already knew that Tim was preparing to move on from being her stepfather. In fact, Tim had recently told Bray that she needed to move out as soon as she turned 18. And this is where I have trouble deciding where I'm at with this case, mainly because I don't know if this is true or not. I tend to lean towards it being true because Bray became so incensed that her go-to solution became murder. I tend to think that Bray's life was barreling towards a cataclysmic implosion and an already vulnerable and hurt teenager decided killing her stepdad was the answer. It would have to be this crazy drastic impact on her emotionally and mentally for her to even go there. And I am not by any means blaming Tim here. But what I can say is that if it is true that he decided that since Bray's mom killed herself that his obligation to her ended, but he still felt it necessary to at least provide room and board until she turned 18, it is my opinion that that was not the right thing to do. Not by his family, not by his deceased wife, and certainly not by Bray. Again, this is my opinion. Just to be clear, you are welcome to form your own opinions about Tim removing Bray from his life. Heck, make your own podcast about it if you want. But I think it's pretty cold on his part to toss Bray out. 
He raised her from the time that she was four. Her mom committed suicide. And so he just wants to move on? Because why? Because his commitment to being the only father figure in Bray's life ended when Doreen ended? And I not only think that it wasn't right of him to do that, it wasn't even necessary. There was room for Bray in his life. He could have seen her through college, helped her launch into adulthood, at the very least, before he decided that she was no longer his responsibility. He certainly had the means to do so, and I think it would have been the right thing to do. He raised this child. She was very attached to him. Maybe he had the ability to turn his feelings off once Doreen died, but Bray, as a teenager, was incapable of doing that. And she really shouldn't have been made to feel like she had to. Obviously, Bray didn't have the capacity to cope with the abandonment and made a very irrational, very tragic decision to kill him. Bray would claim that she loved her stepdad very much, that she loved everything about him, If that's the case, how did things go from that kind of love to murder? Bray was unable to explain herself. But for her part, under no theory was murder ever to be the go-to means of dealing with this. It still baffles me how many people have murder on their list of options. We can attribute it to her being young, not being fully developed mentally and emotionally or whatever, I do believe Bray had other options out there and I wish that she would have considered those before she settled on murder. She could have gone to Arizona with Nathan and her grandparents and she and Nathan have at least one great-grandparent too. Maybe she could have turned to her older stepsister Erin, Tim's adult daughter from his first marriage. Erin had nothing but positive things to say about Bray, and by all appearances, she embraced her as her little sister wholeheartedly. Bray also had her aunt and uncle and cousins on Tim's side of the family. Maybe she could have rallied support from them to help with the predicament that she was in because Tim wanted her to move out. Who knows? But there had to be something more reasonable and less murdery. That being said... There is no denying the fact that Bray was absolutely cold and callous when she talked about the murder plot and how it went down in that interrogation room. And she obviously had the ability to manipulate, seeing as she was able to talk her brother into carrying out the killing for her. That aspect of this, I tend to believe is the way it happened. Almost 100% do I believe that this was all Bray's idea and she roped her brother into it And he went along and told her, gave her advice on what to do. Why would he do that? His obligation to Bray? His love for his sister? Maybe there were still lingering feelings of anger and bitterness on his part, dating back to when Nathan was unable to get along with his stepdad and chose to live in Arizona with his grandmother instead. Or perhaps it was a combination of everything. But I think the number one thing here pointing to Bray as being the driving force behind it all, in addition to her having what I think is the biggest motive, is Bray taking advantage of her brother's willingness to do anything for her. She had to have had some kind of power or control over him in order to get him to come in from Arizona and to kill her stepfather. And maybe that continued on after they were both arrested. She went ahead and tried pointing the finger squarely at him 
perhaps thinking that Nathan would fall on the sword for the both of them. But, surprise Bray, who wasn't going to do that. He pointed his finger right back at her. In fact, for a while, Nathan insisted that he was not even in San Diego. But they had rock-solid evidence that said otherwise. Remember, in the search of the area surrounding Tim's home, they found two pieces of clothing, the black shirt and the makeshift face mask? Nathan's DNA was all over the face mask. And the neighbors identified him as looking a lot like the person that they saw fleeing the neighborhood right after the murder. As far as the detectives were concerned, Bray and Nathan can get as finger pointy as they want. They were both in on the murder plot and they're both going to get charged with first degree murder. And because there is a special circumstance of laying in wait, the mandatory sentence if convicted would be life in prison without the possibility of parole. When Nathan went on trial in November of 2008, it wasn't going to be as slam dunk as you think it would. For starters, Bray let it be known that she was not willing to testify at his trial. And what that meant is that the statements that she made implicating her brother in the murder during her interrogations is inadmissible. Another hurdle is the fact that there is no evidence placing the gun that killed him in Nathan's hands. The gun belonged to Bray's late mom, and criminalists who processed the gun did not find his fingerprints on it. There was a minimal amount of DNA on the gun, but it did not definitively point to Nathan. The trace amounts of DNA found came from all three individuals who were in the house at the time of the shooting, Tim, Nathan, and Bray. So when it comes to the case against Nathan, his attorney is confident that the evidence does not paint a clear picture of how this murder unfolded. But the prosecutor decided that the circumstantial evidence linking Nathan to the crime was enough to take it to trial. The DNA found on the face mask was a match to Nathan, and the neighbors who saw a young man running away from the scene gave a physical description that very closely matched Nathan. The following information comes directly from the court documents related to Nathan's case. In July of 2007, Bray, who was then 17 years old, lived with her stepfather, Tim, in the Rolando Village area of San Diego. Nathan lived in Arizona and attended college there. Bray and Nathan's mom, to whom Tim had been married, committed suicide the previous year. Tim had begun dating a woman a few months after the suicide. By July of 2007, Tim was spending most of his time with this woman. Bray thought Tim was ignoring her, and she began to feel unloved and worthless. Tim had recently told Bray that she needed to prepare to move out when she turned 18. These developments angered Bray. Bray phoned her brother and they discussed killing Tim. They agreed on a plan to hire a hitman to kill Tim on his birthday, July 18th. Bray would take Tim out for lunch. Then, while they were out, the hitman would either stage a burglary or a home invasion robbery and kill Tim when they returned to the residence after lunch. Bray withdrew money from two bank accounts to pay the hitman. She also retrieved a gun that had belonged to her late mother and made a duplicate house key. She put the cash, gun, and key in a box and placed the box in the yard for the hitman. This initial plan had to be changed because Nathan was unable to hire a hitman and Tim decided to celebrate his birthday with his girlfriend rather than Bray. 
Ray arranged to take Tim out to lunch for his birthday on July 19th, the day after his birthday. After the hitman fell through, Nathan decided to kill Tim himself. He purchased black clothing from a Goodwill store in Arizona and drove to San Diego. Nathan parked his truck on a street that was uphill from Tim's residence. According to Bray's confession, Nathan arrived at Tim's residence at 4.30 a.m. on July 19th, and he had entered the house using a key that Bray had made. Once Nathan was in the house, he awakened Bray and told her that they were going to proceed with their modified plan regardless of whether she wanted to or not. During her post-arrest interview with police, Bray claimed that after Nathan was unable to procure a hitman, she decided that she did not want to go through with the murder plot. Tim, who had spent the previous night at his girlfriend's residence and then attended morning appointments, arrived at his residence at 12.15 p.m. on July 19th to pick up Bray for their lunch. When Tim arrived at the residence, he called out his arrival to Bray, who responded that she was in the bathroom. As was his habit, Tim went downstairs to check telephone messages in his home office. Before he reached his office, Tim was confronted in the downstairs game room by Nathan, who was dressed completely in black and wearing a mask that only had eye slits. Within minutes, Bray walked downstairs where she saw Nathan pointing a gun at Tim. The disguised Nathan ordered her at gunpoint to tie Tim's hands with zip ties. After Bray complied, Nathan tied her hands behind her back with zip ties. At one point, Tim asked to use the bathroom. Nathan cut Bray's zip ties and told her to pull down Tim's pants. After Bray complied, Nathan retied Bray's hands with zip ties and took her to the laundry room area where he placed her facing the wall and told her to not turn around. Bray heard a struggle followed by a gunshot. This bullet entered the right side of Tim's body, just above the hip bone, causing him to fall down. The first gunshot was followed by three more. A shot that hit Tim in the face a shot that grazed his scalp, entered his shoulder, and lodged just above the elbow, and a shot to the back of Tim's head, which killed him instantly. Tim's pants and boxers were found inside the bathroom. A witness named Charles Goodman, who was Nathan's cellmate while they were both housed in the psychiatric ward of an Arizona jail. This is where Nathan was after he was arrested by Arizona law enforcement at the behest of the San Diego detectives investigating Tim's murder. And according to Charles, Nathan related that Bray had contacted him after Tim told her that she would have to move out of his house when she turned 18. Nathan and Bray decided to take care of Tim. They initially planned to hire a hitman to kill their stepfather, but the hitman who Nathan contacted failed to show up. Charles also testified that Nathan purchased black clothing at a Goodwill store before driving to San Diego which they found the receipt for. When Nathan arrived at Tim's house, Bray was there and they discussed their plans. When Tim arrived home, Nathan put on that makeshift mask and acted like this was a robbery. Nathan directed Bray to tie Tim up. Nathan then tied Bray. However, Tim was not tied up well and he managed to get free. When Nathan went to tie Tim again, the gun accidentally fired and the bullet hit Tim. Tim said, why are you killing me, Nathan? Why are you doing this to me, Nathan? Nathan then began to shoot at Tim. After shooting Tim in the head, Nathan fled the scene. Nathan discarded the gun and the black clothing after he left the house, and he drove back to Arizona. So, 
We now know that Tim knew that it was his stepson that was shooting him. But I do not know if he had the chance to realize or wonder if Bray was in on it too. Several neighbors told police that they saw a young man running away from the McNeil house. A witness saw the young man run to a truck that was later identified as Nathan's and drove away. Another witness testified that he was 90% sure that it was Nathan whom he saw fleeing. After Nathan left, Bray, who was still bound, called 911 to report a home invasion robbery and the shooting of her stepfather. Bray told the 911 operator that she and Tim had entered the house together and said that they had been confronted downstairs by an armed masked man who was dressed entirely in black. Bray said that the robber had taken her watch and a ring. Later on, police discovered that Bray had removed the watch and ring and hid them in her bedroom to further the home invasion burglary narrative. Bray told the operator that the robber had demanded the combination to the safe and that Tim refused to reveal it. At that point, the robber shot Tim, killing him. Bray made the 911 call at 12.30 p.m. When police arrived, they found Tim lying face down on the floor in a pool of blood. He was naked from the waist down. Bray was cowering in a corner on the other side of the pool table. Bray's hands were bound behind her back with plastic zip ties. She was crying and complaining that her wrists hurt because the zip tie was too tight. Bray was taken outside and the zip tie was removed. Police found no signs of forced entry. On the back porch, police discovered a 347 caliber revolver at the top of the stairs that led to the backyard. Police later found a black shirt in a tree along the masked man's escape route. While Bray was sitting in the ambulance at the scene, she told an officer that a masked man surprised him in the downstairs game room and bound his hands. The masked man also bound her hands and took her ring and her cell phone from her. Now, obviously, you can see that she's giving a slightly different story here to the person inside the ambulance. It changes a little bit because later on, she's going to say that she was ordered to tie Tim. In this rendition, she said that the gunman tied Tim. And she also said that the man had taken her cell phone. But later on, the cell phone was completely removed from the narrative. And then she said the man placed her in another room, returned to Tim in the game room, and demanded the combination to the safe. Tim refused to give the man the combination, and a struggle ensued, and the struggle ended with gunshots. Detective Maria Rivera drove Bray to the police station, where she interviewed the 17-year-old, who at the time police considered to be a victim. Bray told Detective Rivera that she returned to the residence after taking an hour-long walk and went to the upstairs bathroom. Two minutes later, Tim arrived. Assuming that Tim had gone downstairs, Bray did so as well. When Bray got downstairs, she saw a masked man dressed entirely in black pointing a gun at Tim, whose hands were tied behind him with zip ties. Tim said that he had to go to the bathroom, and the man pointed the gun at Bray and told her to take off Tim's pants. The masked man then zip-tied Bray's hands and took her ring, watch, and cell phone. He pushed Bray against the wall near the laundry room. Bray heard the man ask Tim for the combination to the safe, which Tim wouldn't give him. Bray heard a struggle and a gunshot. The gunman fired at least two more shots at Tim before running out the back door. 
After the interview, Detective Rivera drove Bray back to the residence of Bray's aunt and uncle, Richard and Bonnie McNeil. Detective Rivera returned to Richard McNeil's residence that evening and talked to Bray again. This time, her rendition of the events included a significant deviation from earlier. Referring to the masked intruder, she said, Nathan tied my hands. The detective wrote Nathan down in her notebook. Later, she asked Bray about the reference to the intruder as Nathan. Bray initially denied having said that. When she was pressed on the issue, Bray said that she remembered that Tim had addressed the intruder as Nathan. After Bray mentioned the name Nathan, the detective retrieved a tape recorder and recorded the rest of the conversation with Bray. The detective learned from Bonnie McNeil that Bray's older brother is named Nathaniel. Bray told Richard and Bonnie McNeil's daughter that a composite sketch of the intruder which had been distributed to the media was not accurate. The daughter became suspicious because Bray had previously maintained that she had not seen the intruder's face. On her own, the daughter telephoned the police and reported the discrepancy. After receiving this information, police returned to Richard McNeil's residence and arrested Bray at 10.45 p.m. Nathan was arrested the following morning in Arizona. So Nathan's trial lasted for six days, and then it was handed over to the jury. They deliberated for one day before making the announcement that they were hopelessly deadlocked, and the split was seven guilty, five not guilty. So the judge was forced to declare a mistrial. It was really frustrating because there was a crucial piece of evidence that the judge ruled would not be admissible. And the prosecutor believed that if the jury could have heard this evidence, the outcome of the trial could have been drastically different. It was during Nathan's initial interview with investigators. Nathan had quickly shut down the interrogation by asking for an attorney. But a moment later, Nathan told the detectives that he had changed his mind and would talk to them. And the detectives told him, we can't talk to you anymore without an attorney. Nathan threw up his hand and said, okay, I get it. For the time being, I waive my rights to have an attorney present for now until further notice. So the detectives went back into the interrogation room and Nathan started revealing bits and pieces of his story. And it was then for the first time that Nathan admitted to being at the scene when the murder took place. All along, he had been denying having been there. He started giving his side of the story and how everything took place. Among the things that he admitted to, Nathan told the detectives that Tim McNeil's last words as he lay on the ground wounded, but not mortally yet, just before Nathan fired the fourth and final shot to the back of the head, Tim said, you killed me. Why did you kill me? The defense motioned to have these statements that Nathan made tossed out on the basis of having already exercised his rights to have an attorney present during questioning, that everything he said after that is inadmissible. And the judge agreed and declared the statements cannot be admitted into evidence. He called it a Miranda issue. The detectives should have kept going when they were walking out of the room after Nathan had asked for an attorney, or they should have repeated the Miranda rights all over again. Either way, it was a devastating blow to their mostly entire circumstantial case that they had against Nathan. All they had was Bray's side of the story without any corroborating evidence. So, about four months after the deadlock jury, the prosecutor was ready to give it a second go-round, but this time they were going to approach it with a different game plan. They were going to try both Nathan and Bray together, but with separate juries. 
The idea behind it was to get the jurors to see how the siblings were in cahoots. It's called a multi-jury or dual jury trial. The first time I'd ever heard of this was the Menendez brothers trial. And there had been a handful of cases that have actually had three juries. And I was today years old when I learned that. Separate juries are not only used to make the trial process move along a little faster, where there is more than one defendant, but also necessary when it comes to some evidence that might be admissible in one defendant's case, but not in the other. In that situation, the jury who isn't supposed to see the evidence is shuffled out of the courtroom. Some witnesses may also be for just one of the defendants, so the other jury will have to leave the courtroom until that witness is finished. The dual jury is sometimes used when one co-defendant implicated the other one in a trial, and that's what happened here with Bray and Nathan. And I am starting to realize that I am talking really fast, so I'm going to take a 15-minute break. I'm going to go to the bathroom and grab a snack, and maybe I can stop sounding like I'm so impatient here. I'll be right back. Okay, now I feel like I want to take a nap, but I will finish this first. So the case was going to be retried. This time, the siblings were going to be tried together, each with their own jury. Nathan deciding to speak to police after asking for an attorney, then abruptly changing his mind, offering to talk. All of those things that he had said were still going to be inadmissible in the second trial. But Bray's defense attorney wasn't going to be so lucky. Her statements to police in the interrogation room were going to be played for the jury. She had said some things to the effect that Nathan knew that she didn't want to go through with the plan, but she did it anyway, so it's her fault. So that was going to be tough to overcome. Her attorney was going to have to go ahead and offer up that information about Bray to the jury. And he was really rolling the dice on this one. Her attorney admitted to the jury that his client was the one who hatched the plan to kill Tim. He gave that concession that she was the one who got this ball rolling. But what Bray also did was she tried to stop the plan too. It was an effort to show that Nathan was the one who really wanted Tim dead, not Bray. He told the jury that Bray didn't want to do this, that she begged her brother to not go through with it. But Nathan was the one who insisted on finishing what they had started. And he did so by threatening her, pointing the gun at her and telling her if she tried to stop him that she was going to wind up dead too. Nathan was the one who would not let Bray out of the plan. So yeah, telling the jury that you have a liar for a client, but she eventually came with the truth. And yeah, she planned Tim's murder, but then she wanted to back out of it. It was a risky maneuver, but he had to make do with what he had to work with. Another huge factor in Bray's case was her overall demeanor in the interrogation room when she so nonchalantly described her stepdad's final moments alive and how he begged for his life. When she told police that Tim said to Nathan, don't do this, you can go back now, I promise I won't call the cops or anything, blah, 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 blah. Then Bray suggested to Nathan that they listen to what Tim was saying and to put a stop to it. When Bray's interrogation video was played, she was captivated by it all. And her aunt, who was in the courtroom when the video was being shown, couldn't believe how Bray lacked any sense of regret or remorse as she talked about her stepdad dying. 
The informant that I mentioned earlier, the one who met Nathan in the jail in Arizona, testified as to what he was told by Nathan, which was essentially a confession to everything that had happened and how it happened and when everything happened. That witness was Charles Goodman. His testimony about what Nathan had confessed to him in jail was pretty damning. And Nathan's defense attorney tried to undermine this man's testimony by pointing out that this isn't the first time that he's agreed to testify against a criminal defendant in order to be given some kind of time shaved off his own sentence or another perk or privilege. On the other hand, Charles Goodman's testimony was really good stuff for Bray's case because Nathan confessed to him that he was the one who shot Tim. Not only that, he told the court that Nathan told him that when he shot Tim, Bray was screaming at the top of her lungs, and he even pointed the gun at Bray and threatened to shoot her too. Nathan denied telling Charles anything, that he isn't really dealing with the full deck, this guy is not all there, there's no way that he would share this information with this person, and he most likely got all these details and facts from the media reports, or he was fed these facts by the prosecutor. In order to rehabilitate his client, Nathan's attorney called several witnesses to the stand who were willing to speak to his good, nonviolent nature and inability to commit such a crime. But all of them, all of these witnesses, they talked about Nathan from the time that they knew him in grade school. The prosecution was able to bring up witnesses who were willing to tell the court about the older version of Nathan. There was an ex-girlfriend from high school. On the stand, through her tears, she spoke of her fear of Nathan because back when they were in a relationship, he was abusive and he raped her. Nathan's attorney characterized her testimony as that of a jilted lover, upset still that he had broken up with her. Nathan's attorney was bent on placing 100% of the responsibility for Tim's death squarely on Bray, that she was the one who wanted him dead, to further prove that, his attorney had written a letter to Bray the night that she was taken into custody. It wasn't a letter that was written to anyone specific, but Bray claimed it was for her aunt and uncle as well as her older sister, Erin. Bray said that she wanted to commit suicide, and the letter was meant to be the full story where her words could not be twisted around. This is what the letter said. Well, as you've probably heard by now, I'm in Juvenile Hall. Henceforth, I feel more than obligated to tell you the whole story and hope that you still love me afterwards. I already expect for you to disown me and never talk to me again. But if you could find it in your hearts to forgive and love me once more, my one dream would come true. So I see it fitting to start from the beginning. On Monday, my dad and I got into a big fight and this would be four days before Tim's murder. He basically said that I wasn't his daughter anymore, and he didn't know why he'd let such a worthless person ever believe that she was. He went on about how I didn't respect or love him, and how he had saved me from living on the streets when I came back from Tucson. In reality, he had begged me to come home and made me choose between the two people I love most in this world. I chose him, but within a few months, he treated me like he wasn't my dad, just a nice, infallible guy who gave me a place to live. But he wasn't nice, and he definitely wasn't infallible. He disappointed me so much and hurt me even worse. 
I know this will be hard for you to believe because you loved him so much, but so do I, and I still do. I regret doing what I did more than anything else, and it's not because I got caught. It's because I really did love him, and it scares me because I can't believe it's my fault. I can't believe I could do something like that, especially to him. I wasn't right in the head after he came down on me, but I know that's no excuse. That night, I could feel myself losing control of my thoughts and going crazy. I called a friend in hopes that he would make it go away, but it didn't help. Then I called my brother, hoping for the same thing. I expressed my feelings to him, and instead of trying to help me, he started talking about a guy he had met who, for a certain price, would take care of my dad. He told me to check my mom's gun, if it was still in the house, and I found it in the top drawer of Tim's bedstand. Nathan told me to go to the bank the next morning and close my account. While I was there, we talked on the phone. He said I had to get it in cash and had to almost empty both of my Washington Mutual accounts. He also told me to make an extra key. I was to put the money, key, and gun in a black box outside in the yard. On Friday, my dad and I agreed to go out to dinner for his birthday. So the plan was for the man to be in the house when we got back. He was supposed to make it look like an armed robbery. It was supposed to be one clean, easy shot to the head. No pain, no suffering. I was supposed to be upstairs and react to the gunshot. But as you can imagine, things didn't go to plan. I talked to my dad on Wednesday morning and reminded him of our dinner. He said he couldn't make it and he could tell by my voice that I was hurt. I questioned him about his promise, and he said as cold as ice, no, you said it was only lunch. I don't have time for it. I knew I had done some things to disappoint him, but nothing to make him so cold towards me. I called Nathan afterwards and told him the plan was off. There was no way for me to know my dad's schedule, so it wouldn't work. He said okay that he would tell the man. We talked again later that day, and he told me that the plans don't change and that the guy would be there that night. I told him that I didn't want to go through with it, and he said, too bad. I went out later that night to retrieve the box that I left, knowing that it couldn't happen without those essentials, but it was gone. I awoke the next morning around 4 a.m. to the sight of a gun pointed at me, as well as a flashlight. I didn't know who the man was, but I was scared out of my mind. He told me that if I tried to stop it, I would end up just like my dad. After saying this, he left. I knew my brother must have gotten the guy to do it because I heard the door lock when he left. I woke up the next morning, Thursday, around 9, and he was already in the house. After about a half hour, I realized it was my brother, who said he was still going to have to pay the initial guy $2,000 because he had prepared to do it. I don't know if there was really another guy or not. I had told him over the phone that my dad and I were probably going to go to lunch that day, and so he knew he'd be home around noon. He waited and reminded me of his previous message and all the bad things that he had done to hurt me. I told him I didn't want to do it, and he said it was too late. I guess Nathan got bored or started rationalizing in his head about the noise of a gun because he left me in my room for a while and then came back with four of my medical syringes and a baseball bat. 
Two of the syringes were filled with red liquid and two were clear. He said if my dad cooperated, there would be no need for a gunshot. And that's where Bray's letter ended. And I don't believe almost all of it. I do think Bray is the one who masterminded the whole thing. And I don't believe that Nathan took over the lead and threatened to kill Bray if she didn't go through with it, because it doesn't really make any sense to me. But no matter how this crime went down, because none of it really makes any sense if you think about it, I still have some sympathy for Bray and the losses that she had suffered at such a young age. And I don't know why, if true, Tim wanted Bray gone from his life. But I stand by what I said earlier. A father is a father, biological or otherwise. And just because Bray became a difficult teenager, if that's what happened, throwing her out at 18 for me is not the solution. The one thing I do believe about the letter is that Bray sounded like a person desperate to be loved. And if she was getting kicked out of Tim's life, I can see her desperation intensifying. If Bray became a troubled teenager following her mother's suicide, then this child needed to be taken to some therapy. But no matter which way you look at it, there's just no way Tim could have ever seen this coming. Nobody could have anticipated this. The trial lasted two weeks. Bray's jury began deliberations before Nathan's because her attorney didn't call any witnesses to testify on her behalf. Nathan has several character witnesses, so his jury sat a little bit longer. And even if Bray's jury reached a verdict before Nathan's jury, they were going to wait for both juries to finish deliberations before delivering their verdicts to the judge. Nathan insisted that he was innocent and that he had no reason to harm Tim. Bray said that she hoped that the jury would find her innocent, and at the same time, she hoped that her brother would be found guilty. If Nathan were to be found not guilty... She believed that she would spend the rest of her life living in fear of him. Neither one of their defense attorneys sounded very optimistic about their cases. Bray's attorney studied the jurors and felt like none of them appeared as though they were interested in anything that he had to say. Bray's jury reached a verdict after six hours of deliberations, a time frame that Bray's attorney was very disturbed by. When weighing on a decision in a first-degree murder case, you'd think that people would need more time than that to talk it over. Nathan's jury took two and a half days to reach their verdict, but eventually they were unanimous. The verdicts were read in court, Nathan's on one afternoon and Bray's on the following morning. Nathan was found guilty of first-degree murder. He was given a sentence of 25 years to life. Nathan has continued to insist that he was not the masked gunman. It wasn't him. He wasn't there. As for Bray, her jury was way more harsh on her than Nathan's had been. Not only did her jury find her guilty of first-degree murder, but also guilty of the special circumstance of lying in wait. One of the jurors later said that they really, really wanted to find her not guilty and they struggled with it. They cried over it. But it was one particular line in that letter found in Bray's cell, the one she wrote the night that she was arrested, that sealed the deal for them. It was supposed to be one clean, easy shot to the head, as opposed to the three that missed and the one that hit. 
Bray was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. But that wasn't the end of the story for Bray. Bray Hansen was only 17 years old when she and her brother plotted to kill their stepfather. Subsequent to her conviction and life sentence without parole, the Supreme Court ruled that it was unconstitutional for juvenile offenders to be sentenced to terms without parole. So in July of 2015, eight years after she and Nathan murdered Tim, Bray was resentenced to 26 years to life in prison. The extra year was for the lying in wait circumstance. So today, Nathan Gann is 34 years old. He is being housed at the California Institute for Men in Chino, California. He will become eligible for parole in 2026 when he is 39. Bray is 32 years old and is housed at the California Institution for Women in Corona, California. She will be eligible for parole in 2025 when she is 36. The one person who had every right to be the angriest at Bray and Nathan for what they did is Tim's daughter, Erin. But as it turns out, she was just about the only one who sympathized with the both of them, expressing how much she cared for them as her siblings, and just decided to believe it was the lack of love in their lives and in their hearts that rendered them incapable of knowing that this was the absolute wrong thing to do. And on some level... I agree with that sentiment. I said it after I read Bray's letter that she was a young lady who desperately wanted to be loved. And that was the tale of Stepdaddy's Little Girl. Feedback, comments, and questions are always welcome. Join the California Discussion Group and follow the show on Twitter at CaliforniaPod and Instagram at CaliforniaDreamingPod. And if you just cannot get enough of the show, you can join Patreon and binge dozens of episodes that you can't hear anywhere else, starting at just $1 a month. Don't forget to continue listening past this outro for a promo from a Nefarious Nightmare podcast. All right, that is it for this week. I have got couple things to work on after I record this over this weekend. Um, there might not be another episode here in the regular feed for maybe a week and a half to two weeks. It really depends on Fred's emotional stability. It's not easy typing and recording with a potato in your lap. All right. Thank you for listening. Stay tuned for the promo I'm going to play for you. I'm your host, Roseanne. And until next time, sweet dreams. I'm Courtney Fenner, and along with my co-host Amanda Cronin, hey, hey, we are a Nefarious Nightmare. We are a podcast that covers true crime, the paranormal, weird unsolved mysteries, and all with a personal approach and a sense of humor. We also end our podcast with good life advice, such as wear deodorant, 
or Don't Be a Richard. Courtney and I have covered cases such as the Baker Hotel in Mineral Wells, Texas, and the tragic death of little Sharon Matthews. We've also covered the case of Gloria Ramirez, who was, very unfortunately, dubbed the toxic lady in the media. And also, in episode one, we have an interview with Jason Vukovic, the Alaskan Avenger, and his sister, Angelina. So let's all gather around the bonfire and roast serial killers and marshmallows. Yes, yes. Come on in. Come on in. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Audible, pretty much anywhere you find really great podcasts. Thank you guys so much for listening and welcome to A Nefarious Nightmare.